Welcome to We Are DB. I am Brenton, joined as always by Danielle. That's me. Thanks for joining us again as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number 9 on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world is The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Released in 1966, starring Clint Eastwood as the lead, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly is a spaghetti western set during the American Civil War. The movie is the third in the Man With No Name trilogy, an Italian film series all starring Clint Eastwood as the Man With No Name, directed by Sergio Leone. For those who don't know, the first film is A Fistful of Dollars, released in 1964, then there was For A Few Dollars More in 65, and is currently ranked at 106 on the IMDb, with the final film being The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, released in 66. What is a spaghetti western? That is a good question. <laughs> have you never heard that term before? No. You've never heard that term? Well, maybe I have. I don't know, but I'm just hearing it. And I... Did you not see the way I looked at you? No, just I now? didn't. I was like, what? I've definitely heard of the term before. I wasn't really sure what it referred to. Um, spaghetti westerns are... I don't know why, but there was a big genre for at least 10, 15 years of Italian filmmakers making these uh, Old West cowboy movies in, set in America. So if you looked at the credits of Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, they're all really Italian names. Okay. Um, Sergio Leone is Italian. He was born in Rome. And almost everyone who works on these is Italian. Okay. I'm not sure why Hence the spaghetti. that was. Yeah. Okay. Well, they call them spaghetti westerns because I guess that's an American term that they gave to the Italian genre. But I'm thinking about it now. That's kind of an offensive term, isn't it? it? Just a little bit. Yeah. It's like if you made like uh, crime movies out of Mexico, you call them like taco crimes or something. Yeah. Like it's kind of like a insensitive, isn't it? It's from a different time. So I'll just keep that in mind. I have seen all three of these movies. Okay. So he's like the same character. They're all Westerns. It's just a continuation. Kind of yeah, thing. but they don't really link to each other much okay. um, apart from having Clint Eastwood's character in there. He seems to call himself different things in every movie. Um, in the first one, I think he referred to himself as Joe. In the second one, they say there's a bounty hunter called Manco or Manco or something. Uh, and then in the third one, they don't really reference him, except Tuco calls him Blondie. Mm. Um, so he just goes by a different name everywhere he goes. So that's why they call him the man with no name. It's also known as the Dollars Trilogy, because the first two have the word dollars in it. Mm. It was upon watching this trilogy that I'd learnt, what, what does it mean to actually make a spaghetti western film? I really got a feeling for what that sort of means, and I think a lot of that is credited to very famous film composer Ennio Morricone. Um, he does all the sound for all of these. He's got that very... He uses a lot of whistling and a lot of... Trumpets and brass. Yeah, it's a yeah. very iconic score. Like, even when this movie started, you said, oh, that's what this score is from, because you've definitely heard it several like, times. tons of times, yeah. Which is interesting because that means that it's like it's used quite a lot mm -hmm. um, and not just reference to this movie, but that's such an iconic score that he, he has made. And he worked with Sergio Leone almost throughout his whole career um, doing all the composing for it. Even Tarantino hired him to do The Hateful oh, Eight. Oh, really? Because he wanted that old 
Um, old feel. Old feel to it, yeah. Upon watching the first one, what it really reminded me of was there was an old video game that I used to play on the PlayStation 2 and the original Xbox. Okay. Um, Red Dead Revolver. Yep. And it was the first one of the Red Dead series. There yep. was um, Red Dead Redemption and Red Dead Redemption 2 came out last year. But that first one is very much a spaghetti western where they were trying to create something that feels like this trilogy, even the lead character looks like Clint Eastwood. Hmm. And they take a lot of music from the series, which I didn't realize at the time when I was playing it. But it's just it's just got this goofy kind of feel to it, serious, but kind of in a funny way. Mm-hmm. All the bullet sounds make a... Like yeah. really exasperated sound. And it's the exact same sound every time. Like whenever they fire five shots, it's the exact same sound bite that they use. So uh, they definitely have a particular feel that kind of doesn't sound seem very serious. And that could be just reflective of making a Western in the 60s. But they were definitely making Westerns much before this, into the 40s. John Wayne was in the 50s. But I really think it's movies like this and this trilogy that really defined the cowboy movie and definitely the cowboy sound. This is probably the best cowboy soundtrack and the sound effects out of any of them. I just, I remember watching through this, just thinking to myself, I, I wonder if my grandpa has seen this movie because he for a really long time and still now is all about westerns you know like he used to i'm sure he has there i'm sure he has too there was a a tv channel um it's since been discontinued but it was called lone star and it was all westerns so there was like bonanza and um Um, bonanza is a classic i bet you they had very similar sort of sounds yeah and i know the opening of bonanza is very iconic too and it sounds kind of similar as well He's watched God, he's watched Lonesome Dove probably like 20 times, and that's like an eight-hour miniseries of Westerns that was made in the 80s with Tommy Lee Jones. So this was very almost kind of nostalgic for me because I watched a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah, when I was much younger, like probably eight, nine, ten, because I'd go over to my grandparents and they were always on. I, I quite liked it. Leone has a very particular style where he's got these, he sort of juxtaposes these really close shots with these really long, wide, lengthy shots. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see that quite a lot in this with the opening scene. There's a lot of stretches where there's like no dialogue. For the first 10, 15 minutes of this, no one's talking to each other. And toward the end there, there's like a Mexican standoff and it's just like goes for like, feels like six minutes of just like flashing back between these short close-ups and these really long shots see and that style seems really classic and typical of this kind of movie like like i said that doesn't seem out of place to me it doesn't seem like this is the only movie that's done that that seems quite typical of western seems a little cliche at this point but i'm I'm not sure if it was at the the time i don't think it was at the time i think it was the way you did it kind of thing right I don't know how much of that has become iconic because of this trilogy, or it was already a sort of a cliche at the time. I'm not really sure. Um, I, I don't I'm sure think... he, I'm sure there is some credit to him in the series. I don't think it would have been cliche at the time. I think it would have been yeah. stylistic at the yeah. time, and just because it became so iconic, it became a cliche. Real quick, I'm just going to go run through a bit of a summary of the first two, just to understand um, okay. what they're sort of about. And they don't really link, as I said before. So I am also going to give a bit of a spoilers on the end of the second one because it leads into this one a little bit more. So just keep that in mind for a 54-year-old movie. Spoilers. Mm. 
And we're also just going to have spoilers of this movie throughout our discussion um, and not split them up into spoilers and spoiler-free. So just let you know. Okay. The first one, A Fistful of Dollars, released in 64. It's got a few good moments where you see the character, uh, Eastwood's character, as mysterious and he's very fearless um, and he's very smart and you see that in a few good moments. But apart from that, it's pretty boring. Mm -hmm. What's the plot there? Like, what's the story? It was a little confusing. Basically, he's in a he's in a small town and a gang comes to town and wreaks havoc. And Eastwood, see, I'm going I'm to keep calling him Eastwood because he doesn't really have a name. Yeah. He he uh, he pisses him off by shooting a couple of gang members and then he's hiding and then he comes back and they've like burnt down the saloon. It's a little uh, unclear. Okay. There's that scene from uh, Back to the Future Two where Biff is sitting in the in the hot tub and he's watching a Clint Eastwood movie. You see those long shots as well and those mm-hmm. little close-ups in that scene that they show in that movie. And he pulls off uh, the, the armor from underneath the, the poncho. It's a pretty iconic scene. That's from this movie. I always thought it was from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, but watching this, um, that's pretty much the best part of the, the movie is that, that reveal. Cause what did he do? He came back to town to have a standoff with these gangsters. And he's wearing his poncho and his iconic hat and he's walking 50 meters away. Yeah. And the gangster is shooting him from a distance and he keeps stumbling after each shot, but he just keeps walking as if he's like the Terminator or something. And when he gets pretty close up, he reveals that he's he's got uh, an iron plate under his poncho and and that's what's shown in Back to the Future. And it's a pretty cool scene to, Mm. to reveal that and it just shows off the character is pretty smart and he eventually shoots him. Obviously, that's what they usually do in these things. Um, I'd imagine that hurt. I'm just yeah, thinking that's, Ned that's Kelly, too. Like, I'm just thinking, like, you're still getting hit with a bullet. That's why he was stumbling a fair bit. Like, it would be a pretty hard impact on the chest. Yeah. But, um, yeah. The second one, for a few dollars more, released in 1965. Eastwood's character is still wearing his iconic hat and the poncho almost the entire movie. Now he's a bounty hunter, which I don't think he was in the first one. He's following a gang of guys, while at the same time they stake out and rob the Bank of El Paso. I quite liked the second one. There's quite a few gang members that he's actually after, and it's just himself as the bounty hunter. And each one of the guys in the gang has a particular price on his head. One guy's mm. 2000 one guy's 3000 which is quite a lot of money. But the, the main guy in the gang is worth $10,000. Holy crap. So he's kind of after the entire gang, but mostly the, the main one. So he joins up with uh, an ex-colonel who comes back in Good, the Bad, and the Ugly as the sergeant, Angel Eyes. That's interesting. That makes more sense to you now. So they group together as two bounty hunters to go after the entire gang. Eastwood goes in, infiltrates the gang to get in. He eventually kills a few of them and then hijinks pursue and eventually kills all of them, right? They made a deal in that movie that they would split it 50-50. And all the money, it eventually ended up being $27,000 in just the bounties, mm-hmm. which is a, equates to 380000 Of today's money. US dollars today, which is pretty pretty good. Um, by the uh, also they because they robbed the bank, he also takes the takings from the safe. So God knows how much was in there. Toward the end of the movie, the colonel and Eastwood. He wasn't a colonel; he was a sergeant. He was an ex-colonel in okay. the second movie. Okay. Eastwood's going to go give him his half of the thing as per the deal, and the colonel says, "No, you take it all. 
maybe next time. And then he walks off into the sunset and Eastwood's like, all right. So he, he takes the he takes the money from the bank and has a cart of bodies that he's taken from the gang and then he takes it off to the sheriff to get his bounty and that's the end of the movie. Okay. So essentially, he's a very rich man by the end of the second movie. He's established that this um, partnership with the colonel to see him later or wh- what have you. But that's essentially it. There was a line from the sergeant, who was the same guy, by the way, mm-hmm. Angel Eyes, in Good Man the Ugly, where he says, you know the deal, we'll split it 50-50 when they're talking about going to get the Confederate gold. Mm-hmm. And you said, well, why would he split it 50-50? What does that mean? Um, and I didn't want to tell you the, okay. the that part of it yet. Okay. That was why he said that, is because they previously had a deal, they worked together in the previous movie where they had a deal where it was 50-50. Okay. Um, and that's why Angel Eyes is a little more sort of friendly towards him because he knows it's established in the second one that they're both very good shots. They're like the best shot in the West, right? Yeah. Um, so he knows not to mess with him. He has respect for Eastwood's character. Um, he knows he's very smart. So, And that's why they continue along that way in Good and the Bad and the Ugly. That kind of makes things make more sense because there was a dynamic there that wasn't really explained. And I mean, I'm like, go back to the context in which this movie was released in in society. Everybody would have seen the first two movies already. You know what I mean? Like, westerns were huge when this movie came out. So everybody would already know about that character dynamic. There's not much. You don't really need to see the first two, especially not the first one. The first one doesn't link at all. But there are a few moments where you're like, but why did he say that? Why did, why did he do this? So it's, it does give you a little bit more context. It's not essential. But like you said, yeah. um, there are a few little things in there that do help you figure out what's going on. And I think it would have been like the fact that they do that would have been a nice little treat for the audience. It's like, yeah. thanks for sticking with us this far you know what yeah I mean? it's more of yeah. a an extra than an essential thing yeah cool i was wondering at the beginning of this one shouldn't he be a very rich man like he is wearing a very nice coat but um he has all the money from the last one they just don't address it they just he's a bounty hunter still um gotta have from something to one. do <laughs> yeah you know i mean he seems to enjoy it yeah so that's probably what it is was angel eyes such a sick son of a bitch and the other one as well, in the second one. In what way? I don't think he's that bad in The Good, and the Bad, and the Ugly. He's more of just like, he's a bounty hunter. He goes after the bad guys. Yeah, but he likes killing. He likes it. Yeah, I would say he was. When you first see him in the movie, he's you think, okay, this guy's the villain. Yeah. Um, and you definitely pick that up on the in The Good, Bad, and the Ugly as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Okay. I actually think this is... Actually, pretty good filmmaking. Like, I was I was taking notes of some of the shots and things that he does, um, just with, like, the framing, definitely mm-hmm. the use of sound. And it's probably why it's number nine on the IMDb, but it's it's actually, like, a pretty well shot. And like you said, it looks pretty good well, for the 60s. Yeah, I mean, this was a remastered edition we watched, wasn't it? Do probably. You know? It was it on just, a streaming surface. I was really impressed with how how clear it was. How much budget do you think they went into? They had a this? budget of one point two million dollars. That's a lot for back then. It, it equates to nine point five million dollars of today. I think it really was put to good use. See, I was thinking that that wasn't a lot. Nine point five of today's money. You see, movies today made for two hundred million. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, nine point five is not a lot of money, considering they had to recreate 
like civil war battles and build like an entire shanty town and make it rubble you know what i mean like mm. there's there's actually a fair bit to make it look the way it does do you think that that is a pretty low budget do you, do you think that was pretty good i don't think good? it would have been a low budget for the 60s because things were a lot cheaper back then too yeah okay right so like to get all that lumber to make all those barricades would have been a lot cheaper yeah you know to get because they would have built that bridge that whole timber bridge as well for the film mm-hmm. and then blew it up like mm-hmm. that's that's a pretty big set piece but even to pay the people to build it it would have been a lot cheaper so i think you have to take into into account the inflation of the dollar value yeah that's um, why i I, yeah. I looked it up and then also the inflation for the cost of things so things were a lot cheaper so your dollar went a lot further back then yeah, also okay. that dollar is worth a lot more you know what i mean so i think that was a pretty good budget and i definitely think it showed and back then too they i think did a really good job of making like it was easier to make things look older you know yeah um and i mean especially where they set it a lot of the buildings yeah very old and the costuming and i mean of course you gotta have horses and wagons and everything it just I didn't feel like I was watching an old movie. An old movie, yeah. you know. Like I've seen a lot of movies from the 60s and some of them that don't have that attention to detail or the budget. It it looks aged, you know. Well, and a problem too with some of those lower budget ones is that they wanted to still make it relatable, so you'll see these women in particular um in these old style costumes with 60s hairstyles yeah yeah you do see that a bit <laughs> which i appreciated that we didn't see so i mean eastwood's character does have a bit of a uh, 60s thing yeah. going on it's like james dean in a couple of scenes leading on from like the set design and the way it looks we were wondering because a lot of the old buildings the costumes the people the little props in there look very mexican and we were wondering whether or not it's it is in Mexico now. I know that it it lists off a couple of the towns, and the last one does talk about El Paso, and I'm pretty sure it is set in Texas. Mm-hmm. But I I even turned to ask you, was Texas part of Mexico back in the 1860s? I'm, I was wondering uh, that um, because I know that obviously Texas used to be part of Mexico, and there's a lot of Mexican influence in there. I was just trying to because it doesn't actually particularly say the setting. Well, they are fighting the American Civil War. That's, that's the point, right? So, yeah, they wouldn't do that in Mexico. I was going to so. say, wherever they are, it's in the States. Yeah. Texas definitely used to be part of Mexico. Um, I don't remember when, though. So I looked it up, mm. right? I didn't exactly have uh, a history of the United States when I was going to school or anything. So I was a little surprised to realize that for a long time, the land that is most of the western part of the United States currently was Spain. Like, so much of it was Spain for a really long time. So those those former Mexican states, like uh, California, Arizona, and Texas. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was right up until the Mexican War for Independence mm-hmm. in 1821, at which point Texas was part of Mexico. And they were right up until 1836, where they had the Texas War for Independence, or the hmm. War for Texas, right? And the result of that, which I had no idea of, is Texas became its own country, the Republic of Texas. And it was like that for about 10 years until 1845 when it became one of the states, the 28th state of the United States. Hmm. So I was thinking about it. In about a 20-year span, you went from being Spanish, Mexican, part of your own country, and then the United States of America 
in about 20 years. I just thought I, I didn't know that history there. That's really interesting. So to answer your question, in the 1860s, I think it's about 1862 that this is technically set, uh, Texas was part of the United States. And when did you say it had last been part of Mexico? 1836? Yes. Okay. And then it was on its own country. So that was about then when Zorro was set. I haven't seen Zorro. But because that movie is set around uh, California still being part of Spain and Mexico. Okay, interesting. It's actually noticeable how little things were kind of accurate. The actors didn't really look like they just walked out of a trailer sort of thing, which yeah. I kind of liked. A lot of the people had accurate teeth. You don't usually see them for, for movies set in the mid-1800s. They have like really nice, straight, white teeth. But in this, they were all kind of Bad all over the place. Or, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. It's just little things like that I kind of picked up on. I'm not sure how you would do that for the film. Just get hire people with t- terrible teeth or whatever. Can I just say, like, I don't know why he was in there, but the guy with no legs. I really like that guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they were just, they were highlighting some of the... um. The fact of, like, this is what would happen to you if you had no legs in the 1860s. <laughs> well, it was more of a... It was sort of set around the Civil War, so they were showing some of the consequences of mm. that, and it was people like that were around. They don't really say much about the war. Like, they don't really make a statement on it. It's just it's just there. Like, well, the yeah. main characters are around the war. And that's interesting because it's like, there were, thing, there were other things going on at that time besides the war. Mm. Just like in the 40s, there were other things going on besides World War II. You know what yeah. I mean? So that's just interesting. I, I appreciated it. It was a a large part of the movie, but it was not what the movie was about. But that's like saying there was a lot more happening in the 40s in Berlin. And I'm like, well, no, there wasn't, you know, because this is on the front line, basically. Yeah. So that's the know, comparison. It's a, it's, in New York, yeah. there probably was more things happening yeah. during the Civil War than in Texas. It was just, it was strange because I didn't feel like, even though they showed the consequences of the war in this movie, so they rock up to a town and it's blown to smithereens, basically, you know what I mean? And it's deserted. It still didn't feel like the war was the center of the show. Does that it make sense? It wasn't, like I said, yeah. like it, was, it was based around it. They weren't, they weren't really focusing on that. It was more focusing on the gun battles and the Mexican standoff between these gang members. Oh, also, there was there and they're blowing things up around you. Yeah. Just avoid those bullets for a second. got to shoot this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It, it, it's just interesting that they had an American Civil War movie, technically, that's not based the on Civil the war. The Civil War, yeah. Where was the war exactly? Because I didn't... I don't I know. thought it was, like, more to the east, like Louisiana and those states rather than Texas. I just, whenever I picture the American Civil War, it wasn't in these old West uh, cowboy towns. That's usually, that's just not what I always related it to. This movie does take some weird turns. Like they, they start searching for gold and then they end up in a prisoner of war camp. And then they, they're in the shootout in an abandoned town. And then they get go back to the war and Tuco says that he wants to enlist. It's yeah. like, where is this movie going? I like how they show the arbitrarity of it all because they end up, like, disguising themselves as both sides. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, wear, sort of... they wear southern uniforms and northern uniforms, which I thought was See, funny. again, that's just another point that they don't really care about the war. It's just yeah. there. I'm not on either side. I'm just using you. Yeah. In this situation or whatever. There is a very weird relationship between 
Clint Eastwood's character and Eli Wallach's character, Tuco. That's the good and the ugly, with Angel Eyes being the bad. Um, just because it opens with him saving Tuco's life, and then he puts him in for the bounty, and then he saves him again just so he can get the bounty again, and then lets him out into the desert, and then leaves him there, and then he comes back and grabs him, and then he takes Eastward to the desert, and then they're on this pursuit for the Confederate gold, and for between there and the end of the movie, they just go back and forth. It's like, are you trying to kill each other? Are you trying to save each other? Are you a partnership? It's just a very weird relationship, this dynamic that they have. It's like they don't trust each other, but they kind of just have to work and together. They, but they need each other. Yeah. yeah. And then even at the very end, I'm like, I kind of saw it coming, you know? Like, I was kind of expecting him to shoot the rope. And I think... I think Tuco was too, but then he's gone, right? And he's like, you shit, you're actually going to leave me here, aren't you? Because, I mean, he couldn't have got out of out of that situation. And you could see that he was, like, starting to slip and fall and couldn't breathe and stuff. See, even that scene at the, right at the end where he's he's hanging on the, on the grave is really weird. It's like, why did you put him up there if you're just going to shoot him down? But the whole movie is full of that. It's like yeah. you put him in this situation, but you're going to get him out anyway. It's just a very weird relationship. I thought it was surprising that he shot him down because once Tuco sort of gets out of there, which he probably will, he's probably just going to come after Eastwood again anyway and they're back where they started. Because he specifically tells him at the beginning of when they meet, like, I'm not a guy you want to piss off kind of thing. You know, I don't of, forget. He's kind of portrayed as an idiot but he's kind of not like there's a lot of moments there where he's actually a pretty smart character eastwards was already established as he's a very smart character and there's a few things Mm. he does there where you see that but it was actually surprising to see tuco's character sort of come around and he has he does have some smarts about him he's just he's a little bit more run by emotion and you see that like even with the whole time when he's getting beat at the prisoner of war camp Eastwood comes in and talks to Angel Eyes and he says, well, why why aren't you going to beat me up? He's like, well, I knew you wouldn't talk anyway, kind of thing. I think right? that's also a reference to the last one where he kind of knows his character. Mm-hmm. He knows his sort of limits there. But they, but Tuco and Angel Eyes also already know each other. That's a good point. You know yeah. what I mean? So, but, but he knows that he would have talked exactly. if, if I beat him. So that's, yeah. it's interesting. So it just, it kind of gives you a little bit of context to the personalities of both characters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a juxtaposition there. I quite like the very last scene with the three of them, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in one standoff. It was so long, It was though. very long. Oh I, I don't know if they were trying to make it, like, comically long because it got to that point where it's like, okay, hurry up and someone do something I now. think that was a tension-building effect of movie making It was, but for that long? Like, it, it went for ages. I don't think it was meant to be comical. I think it was okay. meant to be dramatic AF. Dramatic, yeah. And I was um, just like, oh my god, just get it over with already. It wasn't really surprising to me for Eastwood's character to shoot Angel Eyes there. I was expecting that, too, that they would both go for him first. Well, I was because those two both know how damn good of a shot they are. So not only was Tuco's gun not loaded because he had already taken the bullets out, there was no way that Eastwood wasn't going to shoot him because he knows how good of a shot he is. Yeah. There's so much death in this. Like, is it really normal for the 1860s for people to just go into a tavern and shoot them in the face? That's really normal for Western movies. It is, but in reality, like, even to have public hangings, it was death was just so normal 
to have and yeah. see dead bodies was a very normal thing. I remember even just saying to you, like, how did everybody get away with murdering everybody all the time? You know what I mean? See, I'm thinking, is that a movie thing or is that a reality thing? Because Yeah, exactly. Obviously, you would probably have your own bounty on your head if you killed just one person. But th- I think there were also leniencies in place where it's like, well, this guy came and was going to shoot me. And I mean, there's... Well, that's sort of still in place now. But yeah. definitely with bounty hunting, you had the right to go kill someone mm. um, if they had a bounty on their head. And there's probably a lot of the factor of you're not going to know it was me because they didn't have DNA forensics or anything. Yeah, exactly. So it didn't really matter if you're in a Mexican standoff in the middle of the desert. You can kill this guy and get away with it. Why do you keep saying Mexican standoff? That's a thing. Okay. You don't know what a Mexican standoff is? Well, it just sounds like, why not just call it a standoff? I don't know. Maybe There's a scene in Inglorious Bastards where Brad Pitt's character defines what a Mexican standoff is. Okay. And I keep going back to that sort of definition. I don't even know if it's true, but every time I see that situation where there's two people, they're both armed, facing each other, I would consider that a Mexican standoff. I just... Whenever I see that, I think of Western, so I think it should be an American standoff. You know what I mean? Like, I don't see anything inherently Mexican about it. I think it's just the name of the term. Okay. I could be wrong. Okay. I'm just curious. Yeah, that is fine. I think it's sort of against our animalistic nature to be kind of afraid of dead bodies and to not ever see one in someone's life is actually kind of unnatural. And I think that's only in the last century, really, that it's become normal. I think it's less than the last century. Um, And I agree with you. So, in this movie here, you know, there's you see dead bodies that are quite well preserved for probably how they actually would have been presented, you know, in terms of death in the war. But you're just walking along the road and there's bodies all over the place. They're probably fresh. I'm just saying they probably would have been more dismembered. Right. And also just people, people died more. There yeah. wasn't medicine, you know what I mean? People got the flu and they died. Like, they'd get sick and then the next week they'd be dead. Um, if you got a bad cut, like you would have, yeah, you know, like the fact that people have no limbs all the time, that's because they had to cut it off because there was no way to preserve it. Gangrene or something. Yeah. yeah. Or like, even then, if you get a bad cut, you might get infected and die. And so death was just almost more imminent. It was definitely it was present never... more, but it it was more Presence likely. a good word. Yeah. yeah it, was it was more. Normal. Yeah. And, it, but it was also more likely to happen. So people were more used to it, and people were more involved back then. I mean, this sounds so clinical and industrial, but the processing of a dead body, you know I was what just I mean? about to say that, because usually seeing these Western movies, you've got, like, your saloon and your jailhouse and your coffin maker. Yeah. Um, that's just a normal thing that you got, you know what I mean? But because people did. They died yeah. a lot more frequently, and they... It was a very big industry you get into. <laughs> well, the lifespan was a lot shorter. Um, and I just think, to look at it societally, it was healthier for people's psyche to be more aware of the imminence of death. Yeah, because today it kind of, people get very uh, sort of surprised these days when someone dies. Like, it's not inevitable for all of us. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, oh, why did this happen? How could we avoid it in the future? But You can't. Obviously, that's a... It's a tragedy when, when someone, you know, dies. But like like I said, it's an inevitability. Don't and be so surprised. People place such a negative connotation around it when it's it's, it's, yeah, it's as natural normal. a part of life as being born is, yeah. literally. You know what I mean? And seeing a dead person wasn't this scary thing that it is now. I mean, I even myself, I don't want to see one. 
I think it would freak me out a lot. And I think that's really unnatural, you know? Mm. Um, it's just interesting yeah. to see a lot of, lot of death in these things. Obviously, there was a war going on, but even just in the normal towns of the first two movies when the war wasn't going on because they were set before the war. Uh, this took a bit of a turn, but uh, it's interesting discussion. Yeah. I thought it was a really, like, classical Western, but in a little bit more, it aged better. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just by the virtue of the cinematography being a little bit higher quality, so the shots don't look dated. This is known as one of the better ones, which is why it's in the top 10 on the IMDb. I wanted to point out that it did age really well, just that it... Because you watch some of these old Western TV shows, like the music and score that they use are really tacky almost because it was of that time. It's cheap. So like you'll see something or there's some suspenseful moment. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like it's just, you you know exactly what it's going to look like and you know exactly how each episode is going to play out because they're all the same, you know? And this... This was not that. This had elements of that, but it was the good elements. So, like, I would probably watch this again. I didn't mind it at all. And, I mean, it's got that nostalgia factor for me, which is part of the reason why I would. Maybe I've had that whistling tune stuck in my head for the last couple of days. Like, yeah. I've, I've just been walking around whistling it because it, it's really very catchy. Um, particularly the whistling part of it uh, is the same in the second one. I essentially went through two movies with the same sort of sa- soundtrack. I think the third one is the best movie of the three. I think it has the best score of the three. It adds on from the previous score, uh, and he does a terrific job. He's really well known for that. Eastwood kind of got typecast for quite a while there in his career as the the cowboy western kind of character, mostly because of this trilogy. But before this, he was he got his big break on the the TV series Rawhide. Um, hmm. which is more talking about what you were talking about with those sort of cheap cowboy western. I've seen Rawhide, yeah. <laughs> um, black and white. And he did a few more movies, uh, western movies, after this. But come the 70s, he was more doing Dirty Harry. Hmm. Uh, Eastwood was very well known for a lot of decades as the, the cowboy western character hmm. that he is in this. I think it's a pretty cool character, actually, now that I actually get to see it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's been parried a lot. I can see why he's kind of an iconic character because he is smart and he's fearless. He doesn't really give a shit. Um, he's just sort of there and he handles everything. It's just like cool, you know. We have been Daniel and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or comment on SoundCloud. And until next week, thanks for listening.